I'm Dr. Scott Lyons, and you're watching or listening to The Gently Used Human. In a world where the pursuit of perfection often becomes a relentless race, have you ever paused to ponder what truly lies at the heart of perfectionism? Is it an internal drive towards excellence, or a mask for our own feelings of unworthiness, a manifestation of internal shame? Today we dive into the intricate maze of perfectionism with Thomas Curran, a world-leading expert on perfectionism and associate professor of psychological and behavioral science at the London School of Economics, to understand how perfectionism affects our mental health and the paradoxical way it blocks our path to genuine success and joy. So whether you've been caught in the snare of self-loathing for not meeting those sky-high goals or simply seeking permission to embrace your beautifully imperfect self, this conversation is for you. Let's get it going. Thomas, welcome to the Gently Used Human. We are so excited to have you here. I am just bubbling with the topic today. And I want to know, as so many of us want to know, how do we be a good enough perfectionist? <laughs> Thanks, Scott, for having me. Uh, what a question to open with, Mason. <laughs> a good... No, we're here to talk about perfectionism, which is you're the world-renowned expert, which I, I love the idea of like the world-renowned expert on perfectionism. And we get to learn all about what it is, why it is, and how to do it better. Yeah. Hopefully. I want to do it better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I'm, lo I'm looking forward to our chat. And, and the opening question there, how do we be a good enough perfectionist? I've never been asked that question before. And frankly, I'm not sure what the answer is. <laughs> This is going to go very well, I see. As a world-renowned expert... And the first question, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, let's start with like, what is perfectionism? Okay, well, phew, I know the answer to that one. Okay, so... Phew, <laughs> phew, I, I might have written a book or two about that. So, what is perfectionism? Okay, so, perfectionism is really important, first and foremost, to differentiate from other things. So we often confuse with it. So these are conscientious of meticulousness, diligence, that's not perfectionism. Perfectionism starts from a very, I suppose, a much more defensive place, a place where we're trying to conceal, hide, a place of deficit, I suppose, where we feel like we're not enough, that we're not perfect enough, and that we need to go through the world proving to other people and ourselves that we're worth something, <laughs> that we matter, that we're loved if we really want to get the root of it. So perfectionism is really a defense mechanism, is a cloak that conceals a, a very fragile and imperfect, vulnerable, and underneath. And if we start there with perfectionism, we can begin to unpack why perhaps it's not as positive, perhaps, as we think it is. I feel a little called out right away. Good for you. <laughs> no, I mean, I appreciate we're already getting to the underlying layers in the first five minutes. Of, and I really, like, I hear you. It's like, we can look at it as the symptoms of like the obsessiveness, the inability to be flexible, all those things that I'm sure you'll talk about. And we know that under the hood of that is actually, it's making up for something. There's a, as you're saying, like a deficit, a self-esteem issue, a pain. And I know we haven't necessarily even talked about this yet, but I've always associated it with like a shame, like perfectionism as like the manifestation of internalized shame. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's shame-based fears of not being enough, essentially. And I worry that those shameful interiors, those imperfect interiors, those flawed person that we know deep down we really are because we're all human and deep down we know that no one is perfect, that we just we should live in fear of, really, of exposing, of people seeing those interiors and then thinking that we're less than or seeing us in a, in a negative or casting us in a negative light. So, look, it's, it's a really, really exhausting, suffocating way to live. It can create a lot of mental health difficulties and it, and it also can hold us back. It can be a block to performance and success contrary to conventional wisdom. So we really have to start with that deficit thinking to really get to the root and the nub of perfectionism. Does perfectionism, does it have like a, a, like a one word definition? It's not one word, one sentence definition or one word. So we know like I hear you like it's coming from a deficit. We know that that's underneath the hood. But how would we like... If I was talking to my nephew, who's like a nine-year-old, 
or maybe he's 11 now. Who can keep up? But no, he's 11 now. What, what would be like our definition that's just like super accessible and available for people? I would say if you really want to distill it, perfectionism is a problematic relationship with ourselves where we expect too, too much of ourselves. But it's also a problematic relationship with other people where we expect too much of other people and we in turn feel like they expect too much of us. So it really, it's, I think in a nutshell, that's how I would describe it. So it's about this disproportionate expectation from what we take on or what we project in others to what's actually accessible or available to execute. Yeah, I think it's really important to add in the social component too, because a lot of people can think, well, it's just it's just about me, but actually all of those standards, expectations, and the perfect persona of trying to project into the world is done in a social context. We're doing it for, for the validation approval of other people. And so we have to recognize that it isn't just something that impacts us, but that also there are social factors that we feel other people expect us to be perfect and that we can sometimes inadvertently project our own perfectionism onto other people too. So it's very much a relational as much as it is a person trait yeah it's so interesting as we're starting to really unpack it and are you a perfectionist like are you a recovering perfectionist where, where are you at in relation to perfectionism oh, oh man I'm, I'm, a, I'm a super perfectionist you're a super perfectionist you get like five perfection stars i am on the top and the end of the spectrum although i have to say I've, I've been doing some good work recently through writing the book through the experiences i've been able to reflect on writing the book has really helped me release it a little bit and also putting the book out into the world i've been able to release my perfection because you've got no control sometimes you know you want to control everything when you when you're a perfectionist you want to perfect everything you can't do that when you put a book out into the world. So, or anything, any, any, anything of yourself into the world. You can't control how other people are going to respond. So, yeah, I, I definitely would consider myself a perfectionist. Why I do the work? It's why one of the reasons I did the research in the first place because perfectionism really took over in my late twenties. I had some, I had some big problems. So, it's a personal curiosity, but it isn't just that. I saw perfectionism everywhere. <laughs> I mean, you only got to look outside the front door and you see perfectionism all over the place. So, I really wanted to understand it not just as an individual perspective but also as a broader societal perspective because this is very much the modern zeitgeist. Yeah. How did you recognize it in yourself? I mean, you know, often when we have such a strong driver like perfectionism or like addiction, one of the, the main symptoms is that we often don't recognize it. We believe it to be the absolute truth. So how did you even recognize it? Well, that's a very common among perfectionism people. They wouldn't consider themselves to be perfectionist or they didn't would think that they've necessarily got perfectionistic traits i think for myself it took it took a long while to see that what was driving me to do the unhealthy things you know working evenings weekends writing my dissertation on christmas day all these sort of really unhealthy things were part of a perfectionistic mindset which was telling me to continually do more be more try to lift yourself above others at all times and prove yourself and justify your existence all the time and the other thing about fiction really curious is that those behaviors you think are the things that are holding you up in the world those are the things you're holding really tight to you because you don't want to let them go you think that every, everything else could be crashing down, relationships could be breaking up, you could have health scares or family or relational issues, could be things that are going on outside you that are really creating a lot of stress. And you think, but at least I've got my perfectionism. <laughs> at least I've got my perfectionism that's going to push me forward, that's going to make me successful. And the realisation for me was that actually it's perfectionism that exacerbates those stresses. It takes those stresses, it squeezes them into all spheres of our lives, it makes us repress the difficulty that we're having under the guise and the cloak of perfectionism, the hyperfunction, that we're just going to keep pushing ourselves forward. That's, that's the one thing that's going to get me through this, when actually it's the one thing that's going to prolong it and make it worse. And I think that was the real turning point for me when I realised that you know perfectionism wasn't something that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, this kind of mantra. It wasn't this Cape Crusader, but there was actually something that I needed to get on top of because it was having a tremendously negative impact on my mental health so you recognized it in this way because you were pushing and pushing and pushing and was there ever a point that you were like i've achieved or i this is good or is the push like does it override that capacity to absorb the completion or the satisfaction of anything well absolutely not i mean perfectionism is is the thief of joy 
because you know you can never feel satisfied if you have perfection there's always something more to do the better you do the better you feel like you're expected to do it's like chasing the horizon you know the closer you think you're getting the further it moves there's always something more there's always another goal to strive for and there's it's what you have in this moment the achievements that you've accomplished in, in the moment matter far less than what you need to do in the future and that just steals contentment like it's an inability to reflect on the you know just the, <laughs> the pride in something that you've done that's been successful or that you've made it a certain distance and that should be normally really something you should be really proud of but you're not allowed to stop and savor you have to continue to crave and that that really is it's a difficulty being a perfectionist because they you know that's the trap of perfectionism in essence that they just no, no achievement is good enough but on top of that there's also the flip side because when we do encounter setbacks and difficulties perfectionism makes us intently self-conscious about those setbacks and can create a lot of self-criticism and self-loathing like, how could you be so stupid what were you thinking you have a certain standard you didn't meet it there must have been something wrong you can really get in on yourself so not only do you not feel joy when you've done some things well but you're really scathing when you when you've done things not so well and that's just it's such an exhausting difficult way to live when you when there's no space to be content and find joy mm. It's, it is the antithesis of, I mean, I love what you said. It's a thief of joy. That's so resonant. And it's like, ooh, I think those of us who are listening to this right now can even ask ourselves, why might there not be more joy in my life? And to, to step back and say, could perfectionism be a contribution to that? That's huge. That's really big. I think it's so important that people recognize that perfectionism is something that rather than holding us up is something that can have a major impact on our well-being because joy is what life is about essentially (laughs) you know if you've ever been in an intimate moment with someone else and you realize you love them for the first time and nothing else matters around you and that's the only thing that's going on right at that moment that's joy right and in this world we experience so little of those moments you know they feel so fleeting and it's not that you can experience unparalleled joy all the time that would be crazy <laughs> like i think the goal really to overcome perfectionism is really to encounter those moments in ever more regularity and to not let perfectionism block those moments and to allow ourselves to live freely inside all of ourselves all our feelings and all of our emotions unencumbered i suppose by that worry about what other people think that that's our challenge anyway so you mentioned there was a breaking point in your 20s, was it, that where the driver of perfectionism, what happened? It just, it toppled over your mental health and in what way? Well, uh, panic attacks, really, really severe panic attacks, depression, listlessness, fatigue. One of the things that's not talked about very often when it comes to anxiety is how tired and exhausting it is and how it just completely saps all of your energy and then that impacts on your functioning and your productivity and that can then lead in a feedback loop back to the anxiety and you know so you start to really descend very quickly once you're on that once you're on that path that certainly was a case for me and it was kind of a, you know there was a so at one point I remember thinking am I ever going to feel normal again like I'm ever going to feel energetic again I'm ever going to feel okay again like I really questioned I thought this was just a new reality and then I sought help and that's when you're in that cycle, it's really, really important to break it by seeking help, by talking to people. You know, your perfectionists will tell you, repress it. Don't tell anyone. Maintain this perfect facade of hyperfunction, that you are a hyperfunctional person. You don't need help. But the truth is that sometimes you do. And it's really important to, to break that cycle of self sabotage, anxiety, low mood by addressing it. And once I was able to do that, I took a bit of time off. I've reset myself. Actually, uh, I quit my job and moved back home because I was in Australia at the time. And then I started to build back up, but with a different mindset, you know, the more philosophical, reflective mindset where, you know, what will be will be. And to try to let life happen a little bit, a little bit more rather than trying to perfect everything all around me. And, and what's interesting is not only has that been a, it's been a, very good for my perfectionism but it's also been very good for my career too I've, I've been able to think more imaginatively outside the box take risks do things that i definitely wouldn't have done before and, and that's and that's helped me so i think it's a it's a really important lesson and this is borne out in the data as well that perfectionism isn't necessary for success that actually 
there are way more healthier ways to strive and we'll become way more productive with a lot less psychological worries and anxieties. And so I think it's time to rethink perfectionism and maybe choose a different direction instead. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that. And thank you for sharing your story. I mean, that first of all, I think so many people can relate to it to some degree of going, there's this panic attacks, that feeling of needing to do this, that needing to perform, the urgency of it, and maybe meeting those expectations or not meeting those expectations, either spiraling into more shame or spiraling into burnout. And either in any pathway, it doesn't lead to really what you're saying, like creativity, it doesn't lead to a place of actual performance, high performance execution. And that's, that's the the shit of it, frankly. <laughs> like, it says, like, if you keep pushing, you will achieve. But what you actually achieve is dis-ease. Yeah, you end up in a really difficult place. You know, I think there's an argument to suggest that perfectionism can in the short term boost performance, certainly. In my case, that's probably right. But it's not sustainable. Look, it's just not sustainable in the long term. You are going to burn out, as you mentioned, and it is gonna, and it is going to feel really shitty. I think it's such an important to break through that conventional wisdom that perfectionism is a favorite flaw. It's the necessary evil. You know, we know it has this baggage, but it helps us be more successful. The data doesn't show that. You know, my experience doesn't show that. Many people's experiences doesn't show that. The data is clear. It's not helping us. And, the, you know, conscientiousness, meticulous diligence, all these things are wonderful. Okay, they're, they're and very, you know, we should be encouraged, but not perfectionism. Yeah. I heard you say on an interview that like when people are doing job interviews and they're asked like what is it like what's your worst trait or what trait are you what's your biggest flaw and people will say perfectionism as like and i understand why it's like then the manager were like oh this person will work really hard and i would laughed at it when i heard that because i was like oh i would never hire someone who gave that answer <laughs> but maybe that's because we're psychologists or we studied psychology and we know the that there's some baggage that comes with that yeah, absolutely. But it is the most overused cliche in job interviews. Recruiters tell us that all the time. It's it's something that employees or prospective employees say. But I do understand it. Like like you say, I, I completely understand it. You know, we live in a hyper competitive world. We don't think that employees are looking for anything less than perfection. <laughs> you know? We just don't. And it's true. I mean, I I say like I wouldn't hire someone, but I also I will be honest. I also really appreciate someone who really has that drive like we'll keep we'll try to achieve a high level so how do we achieve a high level without the baggage that comes maybe from the deficit well i think we've got to switch up switch up a little bit i think we've got to reframe perfectionism look perfectionistic people will think very black and white i've got to do this i must do that I have to work this hard. And if I don't, something catastrophic is going to happen, right? That's the deficit that hides behind this, this, these drives. I think it's so important not to repress those thoughts and feelings, but actually let them in. And maybe, I don't know if it's helpful to diary or just write them down. But I think it's so important to reflect on how much you actually believe that, first and foremost. How much do I actually believe that if I don't do X, the world's going to come crashing down? <laughs> like, do I actually believe that? Or actually is the reality something a little bit softer, right? Like that, you know, it might not be comfortable, but at the same time, it's not going to be a disaster, right? And you can start to reframe those beliefs so that it's a little bit softer, a little bit more compassionate, and encourage yourself then to take the onus and say, okay, well, let's just push myself out there. If I've convinced myself it's not going to be a catastrophe to think I'm, then put my hand up for doing that talk, or put my hand up for leading that project, or, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Or doing that hobby, baking that recipe for, or putting on an, 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 an evening for my friends or whatever it might be that you feel uncomfortable doing, right? Just put, put yourself out there. Challenge your perfectionism in that way. And as you do that, you will feel uncomfortable and it will be difficult. But at the same time, you can learn a lot about yourself and you can learn about a lot about the perfectionism and the perfect person you're trying to emulate. Because essentially, for many, many years, you were living in fear of that person. But by putting yourself out there and doing these things, you can recognize that, that person is not worth living in fear for at all. And the consequences aren't nearly as catastrophic as we think they are. So I think it's so important to, to be a little bit brave, to push yourself a little bit, to be vulnerable and, and accept that it's going to be uncomfortable, but it's okay. And be kind to yourself. I mean, I know it's a cliche. I do recognize that. But it's so, so important. If you are going to push yourself a little bit, you're going to put yourself in situations where you might make mistakes. You've got to be kind. 
to yourself and to other people in those situations too. Um, so kindness, I think, is a very, very big antidote to perfectionism. And, and see this as a journey, by the way, not as a destination. I don't think you'll ever eradicate your perfectionism totally, and that's not really the goal. The goal is to just move ourselves a little bit further backwards on the spectrum. And we can do that by being vulnerable and pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone a little. Yeah, I love that. I mean, there's just gold nuggets in all of that. I had this image in my head of like the perfectionist hearing all of this and being like, I'm going to do the best version of challenging perfection. You know what I mean? Exactly what you mean. This is what that was your initial question on this whole. <laughs> I'm going to crush this. I'm going to fucking crush perfection, like anti-perfectionism. It's so true. You know what? That's that is the kind of self help in a nutshell. It's why well, you should do, you should be doing this. You should be doing yoga. You should be doing pilates. You should be doing meditation. This is what Karen Horney talked about. She talked about tyrannies of should. And when you encounter any, when you embark on any any rehabilitative journey from, from psychological difficulties, it's so important to make sure that they're fully integrated. That what you're doing aligns with how you want to live. Right and what's true to you, and and it shouldn't come from a place of okay, well, in order to get over this, whatever it is I'm thinking about, I have to do X, Y, and Z. Right, that's not the way to think about recovery. What's more important is that you find your you, you find your why, you find your purpose, and then you do everything that you can to move yourself in that direction. And that's why I say try being vulnerable, pushing yourself a little bit, so important. But the direction in which you push yourself must be aligned with you know, what's valuable to you and what chimes with your own passions and interests. I want to take a moment to give a loud shout out to The Embody Lab, which is one of the most incredible resources for body-based and somatic therapies. This show is all about healing and The Embody Lab does exactly that. Whether you're on your own journey of transformation and discovery or enhancing your skill sets in your career as like a coach or a therapist, a body worker, or really any career where you are supporting other gently used humans, the Embody Lab is your place for deep, inspiring and impactful workshops, certificates, masterclasses, and an incredible community of like-minded folks. I love the Embody Lab, and so do so many other people that call it a platform to come home to over and over again. The Embody Lab is giving my listeners an exclusive offer, a one-time 10% off code to enhance your embodied well-being. All you have to do is go to theembodylab.com and use the code GENTLYUSE10 at checkout. So you've talked about challenging reality or the perception of reality of going, okay, if this isn't perfect, is it actually the end of the world? Or what are the consequences, if any? Maybe I wouldn't get five gold stars. I might get four gold stars on my spelling test. If it, you know, like, or if I don't get all A's, I will still be able to go to college or, you know, like whatever it is that we have built up sort of recognizing and challenging the narrative we built up around the idea of if we don't do this, then this. I was just going to say, but that's the, that goes back to the idea that perfection is, is the block to progress. So that catastrophization is really just an excuse to stop us moving forward. And so that's that's the big roadblock to try to overcome, which is why softening those beliefs, reframing those beliefs is so crucial. But And by the way, it's also linked to things like procrastination and avoidance, which perfectionistic people do a lot. You know, when they encounter really challenging tasks or things that might ultimately end in failure, they will avoid those things. And we see this in the lab all the time. So it's not just about reframing. It's also about giving yourself specific blocks of time to get started on activities. Turn everything off, turn all distractions off, phone, internet, whatever it is, and just give yourself a certain amount of time to get things started. So it's not, you know, it's not just about putting stuff out into the world, letting things go. It's also about removing the block to starting projects and assignments and presentations too. And that's also important for the That's so interesting. I never really correlated that where those who are trying to be high achievers are also easily distracted or procrastinators or 
Yeah, but it goes back to that self-sabotaging nature of perfectionists that they feel it's an anxiety management strategy, essentially, to remove ourselves from what's really difficult in that moment and do anything else, you know, to avoid it. And we really, that's that's the biggest block to progress. And so we have to really focus, hone in on that when, we, when it comes to challenging our perfectionism and break through it in ways that can feel quite brutish at first you know what i'm saying is turn everything off remove all distractions and just get something done you know that sounds quite extreme but it's so important as society point because we know that if perfectionists people start they're way 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 more likely to finish so just getting things started is so important and, and as i say giving yourself set amounts of time being very strict with yourself and removing distractions is the best way to do that so that's one aspect of perfectionism. Let's say as it relates to other areas like the body of like this idea of the perfect body or which we see it's and we see it then lead to things like orthorexia and overexercising. So how like and I hear you it's like how do we start to it's so interesting because it's not like you don't want to necessarily start poking holes in someone's construction of their ego. But you want them to start to become more tolerable to the the human flaw or the flaws that are just part of human or the the things that aren't absolute. So, like, what would someone do? Let's say let's go through different incarnations of perfectionism. So, like, perfectionism of the body. How would how would we work with someone in that regard? I mean, first and foremost, I have to preface this by saying I'm not a clinician, so it's really, really important to stress that. But what, what I do know from the from the literature is that what we see in perfectionist view is a very warped sense of what's normal as and what's desirable and obtainable. And and often those things are out of line with reality. And that doesn't just mean, you know, we've talked about work, could we talk about sports too, but it also applies to these kind of exercise image-related domains. Everybody's different, nobody's perfect, as you mentioned. And if we try and sculpt perfect airbrush and all the rest of it, our lives into some perfect existence, what we do is we lose something of ourselves. And I think it's so important when you feel like that's happening, that there is a big disconnect between the person that you're trying to emulate and who you really are, and that that's having a major tension internally. Like you feel rubbish about yourself because you're not meeting those expectations, then that can unfold and manifest itself in a lot of obsessive tendencies around exercise, diet, and all the rest of it. The real key in, in order to turn the corner on those tendencies is to try to reconnect with ourselves, to accept that we are imperfect, we are flawed, and, and everybody in some way has a, lives an imperfect life, and that's okay. There's actually some joy in embracing those imperfections and differences about you know who we are and, and what we look like. And I, and I think if we can accept that, and if we can accept ourselves on those terms, then the power of those pressures to conform to some kind of idea just melt away, and that we're able to live more contentedly inside our own lives with our own flaws and our own foibles. So, you know, that's really... In on a very broad level what's important and that requires a lot of introspection of course a lot of reflection a lot of reframing some of the strategies that we've we've talked about but it really 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 is important first and foremost to recognize that we're all different and we're all imperfect and that's okay that's the enlivening part of life really we should be embracing those things rather than trying to exercise them or airbrush them out of existence yeah i mean it's it's an interesting thing because we can get to the point where we can say oh, I'm a gently used human or I'm a, I'm a human and I'm not perfect. But then there's like the actual work. And I think about that as like, how do we then embody that vulnerability that we're talking about here? Because like, it's one thing to cognitively recite it. It's another thing to actually feel it and believe it of going, oh, I... Like I think of an example of like, I cooked dinner for a bunch of friends the other night and then frankly, it wasn't that great. But they were still enjoying it and we still had a great evening. And so I think about like those moments where it's like we could shame ourselves or we could try to be like, I mean, at one point I said I would remake the dinner if they wanted. And they were like, no, 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 it's great. It's fine. It's good. It's good enough. It's not burnt. Good for you. That's exactly the feedback you want, isn't it? <laughs> That's just, I was like, oh, no, I want it to be the best fucking meal you've ever had. And I've never gone to school for cooking. So there's that. But it's like taking that time in to be like, oh, they still love me. They're still here. 
And to actually like pause and take that in, it's like, oh, I'm not the best cook and that's okay. And we're also okay. And there's an okayness here. And can I again pause and just like take that in? Like the world is okay. What does that feel like? This relationship is okay. What's that like? The food is okay. And what does that taste like? You know, like really taking it in as opposed to repeating a mantra at myself of like, the world's okay. Flaws are okay. You know what I mean? Of like, how do we really embody it? Well, it's not easy. And you've got to embrace the journey. And also, it's really interesting you bring up that anecdote because that's so, that's like, I, I just feel that a lot. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners will feel that. Like, it's really hard in this in this culture, isn't it, to do something that you're not world champion at. Because, you know, everyone's putting on these soirees, fancy dinner parties, and it feels like that's the level, right? <laughs> and at some, I think it's really important to do exactly as you're saying, to recognize that sometimes you're not world champion at everything. That's okay. And that what's most important is that you find joy and purpose in those things. The meal is important, yes, but what's more important is the camaraderie, like the, the, the company, the conversation, the connection that you have with other human beings. So that's really what makes us a human and, and, and gives us joy. Those are the things, you know, the meal, if the meal was amazing, that would be great. But if the meal is good enough, that's also great. Like, it's not about the outcome. It's not about what's produced, but more about, you know, the process and and the fact that we tried. You know, we did something. We put something on. And that's really important. And, and I think that goes for everything, by the way. Hobbies, whatever, you know. If you suck at something, I suck at playing guitar, for example. But it brings me joy. And my perfectionism would stop me doing that year after year after year. But now, once I've started to be able to let things go a little bit more and recognize that the joy is the most important thing, not the act, then you can begin to immerse yourself in those experiences. And and that's what it's about, really. So it's I don't pretend it's easy. I don't have a quick fix life hack. Here's five top tips. Go away and do them. It's it's more about reconnecting with ourselves and, and, and a wholehearted commitment, I suppose, to living inside all of ourselves with all of our feelings, all of our emotions, with what we're our friends and families and experiencing the, I, I don't know, like, a common humanity. And I think that's that's the most important thing. And it's certainly helped me, like, focus on like, the, the important things in life. It's, it's certainly helped me overcome perfectionism. I appreciate that. And I, I also appreciate you saying, I don't have the top, like, here are the top five things that hack you out of perfectionism. Because that is a manifestation of perfectionism in our culture. I get those same credited questions. What are the top five ways to do this? And I was like, I don't know. Because every human is different. And this idea of it being exact and like the absolute and like this is the hack just feels like a projection of a that urgency and that not enoughness and like that it has to be shaped and perfected in a way that is sellable. Well, you're really getting at the nub here of the cultural angle on perfectionism that I tried to take in the book because a lot of this is societal, is systemic. You know, we feel this way because we're supposed to feel this way at some level. You know, we're supposed to doubt ourselves. We're supposed to feel like we need to be more. We need to have more, do more, work more because that's what that's what keeps the economy growing. And of course, if we didn't feel those things, our economy would really struggle in short order. <laughs> and one of the things I see a lot is people recommend, you know, contentedness and believing in yourself and feeling, you know, and feeling that you are good enough. You know, these are really important things to feel. They are really good, important things to feel. But of course, if everyone started doing that, we would have big problems. <laughs> so this is very circular in some ways. And we have to we have to be aware of that context. Because that takes a lot of personal power for ourselves. Actually, you know, the kind of system depends on this to a certain extent. And actually, I'm supposed to feel this way. So there's nothing wrong with me. That actually, this is just part and parcel of the society I live in. And I think there's something quite powerful just about that understanding and that recognition alone. Yeah, I mean, because we could also say like, oh, perfectionism is about these unrealistic expectations of ourselves. But where are those expectations coming from? They don't just develop and grow like a fungus inside of us out of nowhere. They're not a virus. In hypnotism, we talk about thought viruses. And we say, where is the origin of that infection? Or where is the origin of that virus? And so, like, I think it's really important to recognize of like, okay, we might have internalized those expectations, but from where? Whose voice is that that's really announcing 
and pushing that drive. It's so important, actually, we talk about that because you're absolutely right. We talk about these societal problems, mental health crises, social media and parenting practices that are changing and the monoplane and all this stuff as kind of interesting happenstances. (laughs) Oh, that's an interesting thing. Let's look at that. Oh, there's another interesting thing. Let's look at that. Well, actually, what we don't do is try to connect the dots. I recognize all these things are linked to a basic level and they're linked by living inside an economy that needs to grow way more then we need to feel content. And look, there's nothing, I don't put a value judgment on that. I'm not going to come here and get all political. All I'm saying is that that is just the way it works. <laughs> but, but that, Don't be shy. <laughs> but that's just the way it works, right? But good or bad, whatever, you're not going to get into that, but that is just how it, how it works. And that's where, the, that's where if, at its most basic root level, is where those voices are coming from. It's that push to continue to have, be, do more that makes us feel like we're constantly not enough that we have to be updating our lives all the time and that we have to feel dependent on other people's validation and approval for a sense of self-esteem in ourselves which social media companies take advantage of through the algorithms which advertisers take advantage of us through you know see just seeding those little holes of doubt that then they fill with a material product you know all of these things that go on all around us on an everyday basis almost a minute by minute basis when you think of smartphones and how ubiquitous they are are things we just can't escape and those are little voices that are coming out all the time and I think we just need to be aware of that. I think awareness is so important when it comes to our perfectionism because if we can, if we can, wrap, we can wrap our head around the fact that this in some way is the way that we're supposed to feel, then that's, that takes so much power off, off this idea that there's something wrong with me, if that makes sense. Mm, you better preach about that perfectionism. You better preach, son. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I appreciate you deconstructing like that. And like, if perfectionism is representative of the void within us and the deficits within us. And we recognize, absolutely, people are going to capitalize on that and say like, ooh, there's something to hook into, so let's do it. Because that captures and maintains your attention, which is the driver of an economy, the driver of capitalism. It's not political, it's just what it is. That's how marketing works. Take a marketing class, that's how it works. I took a marketing class. That's how it works. <laughs> and and it's like, I think about, to go back to like the thought viruses too, it's like awareness is so important because it is coming at us. We can't necessarily stop it. We're not going to stop social media. We're not going to stop our parents and their high expectations of us. We're not going to stop the expectations of work, of what like the achievement markers are. So it's really about having a conversation with what's coming at us and saying, what do we want to absorb? And where can we find the antidote, it sounds like, to this, which is keep connecting to the things that give you purpose and joy. Oh, that's so true. That's exactly it. And, and in some ways, it's a kind of rejection of what he's told you should be doing and rather trying to find your purpose within that world. And look, if you want to, if what gives you purpose and meaning is to go out and go on holidays buy cars whatever like that's fine there's nothing wrong with that at all but it's got to come from as you mentioned a place of purpose and meaning because if it comes from a place of external validation and approval then you need to look a certain way or behave a certain way then that that's perfectionism that's trying to be somebody else somebody perfect and that's where the discomfort comes from in essence yeah i think about like some of the the ways like the radical ways, especially when I was younger, of exploring imperfection, like taking classes where you stand in front of a mirror naked and saying like, I accept this. You know, like I come from a more experimental radical background and the realization or the the sort of 1960s version of therapy sometimes, like Esalen and, and those wild, wild folks. But yeah, I remember I was working with a, a CEO a couple of years ago. I work a lot with people with a lot of perfectionism because they're in roles where that it, they have a lot of pressure to execute at a very high level. And I made him play tag with me in his office at work. And he was like, but people will see. And I was like, well, let's see what would happen. And then like what ended up happening is people like came up to him afterwards because they could see through the glass door and they're like, it's so great to know how playful you are. Like that gives me a sense that I can breathe. Yes, that's great. And I just like playing tag. So, <laughs> so added bonus. It's added bonus. 
But you know what, though? There's a really important lesson there because there is something very humanizing about when you break down this facade, right? This, this, and you realize that actually you're not bulletproof, that you are impervious, you are vulnerable, and you have a playful side that doesn't necessarily conform to this professional persona. It, you think that's going to be going to be revealing to other people. You think that they're going to be judged for that, but actually, there's something intimately humanised about it that people could recognise in themselves, and it brings you closer to other people when you show that vulnerability, not further away. I mean, that's a wonderful. I mean, it's a very funny anecdote, but I think that's a wonderful example actually of like the reaction is not what you expect it to be because I think it's something very connecting about those moments where the facade is shattered and you find out you know the real person underneath i think we all we all want to see that yeah in fact those types of things were finding play again were much more effective for me than standing in front of a mirror naked like i was just like okay i'm naked there's my stuff it is what like i don't know i would still like to work out more and i can keep repeating this idea like this mantra of like you're good enough you're good enough but it was it couldn't be embodied like it was just like something i was saying at myself in the same way that I, and I couldn't absorb it more than I could absorb all the other people's expectations or, and then my own expectations on myself as a projection of what other people might be thinking. Yeah, I love it. I love that. And it is true. It has to be embodied. It has to. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. You know, it's one thing to say these things. It's why it's so hard, actually, to, like, to communicate. Because I get asked these questions a lot. So, like, what, what do you need to do? What's your, you know, your tips and all the rest of it? And it's really hard to communicate that this isn't just, like, you can't just get this. This isn't a, you can't perfect <laughs> anti-perfectionism. Like, you really have to let it sink in and take time. And that's not going to happen overnight. That won't even happen over a month or whatever. It could happen over years. It's a journey of self-discovery, of accepting who we are. And that's those are small baby steps, you know, that really... Yeah, it's really difficult. What I'm saying it's really difficult to like say in a snapshot, five sec, yeah, five minute snippet. Here you go. Here's what to do. But it's bigger than that. It is bigger than that. It has a longer history than that. I'm assuming if there's been some type of deficit experience, it didn't just start yesterday. Whether it was quote unquote failures, and I, I want to come back to that word, but quote unquote failures or mishaps in our life or moments where we didn't achieve someone else's expectations and we have this sort of like frozenness in our body that can lead up to this big greater sense of like i'll never let that happen again or i'll never be in that position again where that type of shame was felt or that type of disapproval was felt but it doesn't just happen overnight it is as i'm i'm hearing and i remember from the research as well that you've done it is a progressive experience yeah, it's a journey, you know, and actually the, the purpose is, is embarking on the journey, being brave enough to take the first steps in a different direction. Like that's that's the hardest, most courageous, boldest thing you can do. A lot of people focus their mind on the out, like the end point, but I'm not even sure there is an end point. Like you can never fully accept yourself. I don't think that's ever possible, but you can certainly get closer to who you are by taking, you know, by moving in a different direction. And that really, it should be really about the journey towards it rather than the end point, if that makes sense. And so it's really difficult then when you get asked, well, how do we get to this end point to then communicate? But it's not really about <laughs> It's much more about just turning in a different direction and taking small steps in a very uneven path as well by the way there's going to be times where we succumb to the pressures and that's okay you know it's not a linear trajectory either but as long as we can put ourselves on in the right direction that's the most important yeah i love that by the way and and if like we make it about the end point then we're just replicating the the ideologies of perfectionism like i will achieve again this healing and i will get it done in this way and it will be Absolute. Yeah. I think that there's some something really interesting in the the wellness field, which is like, okay, there's been a real uptake of people attending to, listening to, reading about like attachment theory. And okay, so like, all right. So now because of what happened in my childhood, I have a particular stance and that is in ref that reflects in my current relationships to myself and other people. And there's this idea of that now more than I feel like ever is about like 
we should have had the perfect parent. Yeah. And so like, oof, that's fucking, like, I'm not a parent. I'm a dog dad, but like, and there's a lot of pressure there, but like, there's so much pressure on parents because of, as we recognize the consequences of not having certain qualities in our childhood. Now there's this like, yeah, talk about it. Scott, do you know what? Thank you for saying this because it's, this is like a breath of fresh air. I feel so released because what you're saying is things that I've just thought a lot about, but you, it's very, it's, it's difficult to distill them into, into such a coherent way as you've just done there. But you're absolutely right. You know, these, these emphases that we place on, on having the correct upbringing and making sure that we don't foster that insecure attachment. And, you know, we're doing these things where we're giving love, support and all this, but like, it kind of inculcates this sense we've got to be the perfect parent. And that Donald, Donald Winnicott uh, talked very persuasively in the 1950s, I think it was about the imperfect mother. And, and basically, his argument, which still stands today, we've forgotten about it, but it still stands today, is that there's no such thing as a perfect parent, first and foremost. It doesn't exist. But secondly, you didn't want to be the perfect parent anyway, because what you have is a situation where you would teach young people that there's no room for errors, that becomes hypersensitive to your worries and the mistakes that you think you're making. And that also the world is a messy place. It's chaotic. It's unpredictable. They have to experience some of the shit, like a little bit of it. Do you know what I mean? So that they're prepared to go into a world where they've experienced even more of the shit. So it's not even optimal to try to be the perfect parent. And I think that you can have overriding philosophies which are extremely healthy. The biggest one being consistency of love and approval. That's so important. Don't qualify the love and approval. Just love kids all the time. Keep loving them no matter what happens. It's so, so important. And you can teach them also by example, you know, failure and mistakes and the rest of it are very humanizing and humiliating. Talk about them, laugh about them, humanize them. You can have so, so these broad kind of philosophies are doing it really important. But in essence, don't try to perfect everything and worry about every little message or word that you're saying is going to inculcate some kind of stress or anxiety or insecure attachment, but actually rather just live and exist and, and enjoy the joy of being a parent and bring, <laughs> and the frustrations and the stresses and strains that come with it. Just go along with the ride. That, that is the most important thing about being a parent, I, in my opinion, uh, not worrying about how to do it 100% correctly. This show is also brought to you by the absolutely stunning and powerful tools for transformation that are created by Omala. Oof, even the name Omala transports you to a place of flow and vitality. These are some of my favorite products ever, like an amazing color-changing yoga mat that responds to your temperature and presence and reflects back your posture in real time. They have this incredible smelling skin balm candle that heats up to activate all the essential oils and vitamins that your skin has been craving for. I mean, look, if I could live in a giant bath of this candle, I would 100% do it. They also have these journals that lead you into a profound insight, and then you can plant those journals to create a stunning flower garden. I mean, damn. If that's not both deep and inventive, I don't know what is. If you're someone who desires to live in a luxurious flow of life and who believes in transformative wellness, then you have to check out Omala. Omala is giving my listeners an exclusive discount to treat yourself to something that is as special as you, boo. All you have to do is go to omala.com, that's O-M-A-L-A.com. Use the discount code DRSCOTT10 at checkout. And a portion of every purchase goes to an incredible charity. You got this. I have a, a dear friend who, bless her heart, like grew up in a really painful environment. A lot of drugs, a lot of absence, and... She's from my hometown. We're like, we're still like childhood friends. And like, she was talking to me about all this stuff about, and like, couldn't let the baby down. Cause, and she would call me and she, cause I used to work in pediatrics and she'd be like, okay, I know that this is the best way to pick up the baby. So I don't startle them, but I didn't do it. So how do I go back? And, you know, and it was like this anxiety that was the driver. And I was like, Hey, love in the, this idea of, of trying to correct what you didn't have, 
can you hear the intensity in your voice? She's like, oh yeah, I, I can hear it now that you reflect it. I was like, can you feel the intensity in your body? She's like, yeah. And I was like, the idea that you hold so strongly to is that you want to be present in a way that was those your caregivers weren't present for you. And I was like, all you got to do is come back in your body, be here. That's huge. That's so big. And the anxiety of being present, of having to be perfect in your presence is taking you out of that presence. And it was a big, I mean, it's, it's still a learning process for her as it is for all of us, but it was a big revelation of her just wanting to do so much better than what she got. And it's totally understandable and it's completely natural. And you know, I have so much empathy for parents these days because you, it doesn't matter what you do, you probably always can do so. You're going to fuck up your kids. <laughs> They're going to hate you. But Scott, can I also say something really provocative? I'm sure it's going to sound that way, but I don't think that we have that much control over the way our kids turn out anyway. If you look at the data, most of it's genetics, which is huge, right? So like, you can't do anything about that. It's about half the way we turn out is genetic. And then what's the rest of it is learned mostly, not always, of it, but mostly in the broader environment outside of the household you know with our peer groups and our friends you know yeah, who, who in the i had two parents with different accents did i did i take on their accent did i take on the accent of the world around me of course i took on the accent of the world around me the people that i was because they were the most proximal influences on on my character and development and that goes for social media you throw social media into it and even more so you know so i think also that sounds like oh i've got no control but all, that can be also quite liberating in some ways it could be so great the comfort there that our control is limited in that way do you know what i mean like and i think that that can take a lot of pressure off too to recognize that all we can do is provide the, the, a warm safe and comforting home environment that has plenty of love and all the, and all the rest of it those are very crucial things but beyond that our control is, is quite limited and, and i think sometimes that's there's some comforting there i mean i i imagine why for a lot of people or enough people like why like things like AA are helpful because you work towards being with the helplessness. And that is like part of life is not necessarily the helplessness. It's really about the acceptance here. What we're talking about is acceptance that we're not in control, which can be framed a little bit as a fine helplessness, <laughs> like a, a, an innate human helplessness, which is like the world is chaos and the, the more we try to grasp onto it, the more suffering we experience. And at the same time, <laughs> we're doing our best within that and trying just to go back to the parent thing more specifically, the Godman's, uh, the good Godman's, Godman Institute, and they talk about good enough parenting. And I love that because they're backing it up with research that says, if you can show up for 33% of the time, one third of the time, if you can be present, emotionally available, and all the other the components that, that lend itself to secure attachment, then guess what? You've done a good enough job for them to feel like to have a secure attachment. And it's like that, when I read that, I was like, whoa, 33% of the time, that's it? Like I was mad at first, personally. I was like, no, it should be 90% of the time. But it's hard to argue with that amount of research. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with the philosophy. I think it is, you know, if we become overly anxious about rearing, then children will see that they're very impressionable creatures. And if we're worried about making mistakes in our parenting, they're going to worry about making mistakes in their own lives because that's how they see their parents interacting with difficulty and setback with, with anxiety. And so it is about creating a broad philosophy and a broad environment of love and emotional support and all the rest of it and giving as much time and, and all the rest of it to our, our kids but not worrying it so much about it being 100% perfect <laughs> and like you say yeah 33% good enough I don't know what even 33% means in terms of practical but I get the broad philosophy that it doesn't have to be all the time doesn't have to be all the time yeah when I was doing my dissertation and I wasn't available for my dogs and <laughs> this was this was and I felt I went to many therapy sessions being like, I just feel like I am failing as a dog dad. And I just, like the guilt was so strong. This was about the same time I was, I had come across the research on 33%. And I was like, all right, well, if I can dedicate at least 33% of the time, maybe I can resolve some of my guilt 
which is actually stopping me from being more engaged with them. Like I'm shaming myself and the shame is like perpetuating the freeze and not actually helping me be a better available dog dad. I can't believe I'm spending this episode talking about being a dog dad. I'm sure others can relate, whether you have kids or a pet. No, I mean, it's, it's the permission, isn't it? It's the permission to just know that it's okay, that I, I can't be available there 100% of the time, and not to feel guilty about that, to know that there are other aspects of our lives that also need nourishment, and to know that there are aspects of our lives that also we need just to do, you know, to go to work, to see people, you know. These are things on top of our responsibilities. Just giving ourselves permission to be able to do those things is, I think, really important. Yeah. Now I'm going to bring up something not controversial, but a little like pushy against that, because it's like, now, if any of our partners only showed up for 33% of the time, I mean, like that wouldn't feel like enough. Like as an adult, like my if my partner was only available 33% of the time, I'd be like, and goodbye. <laughs> I mean, granted, and I think perfectionism in relationships is extraordinarily toxic and at the same time, extraordinarily valid <laughs> for many of us. Or we just need to normalize that so many of us have this ideal perfection or perfectionism towards what a relationship should be, what our partner should be. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of research actually on the, on this in terms of perfectionism in relationships. And so we think of perfectionism has three core elements, self-oriented as a self, one that comes from within, socially prescribed as one that comes from outside, so a sense that everyone is basically perfect. But there's a third one that's really interesting. It's called other-oriented perfectionism. And this is perfectionism that's turned out other-oriented perfectionism, other-oriented other. So it's turned outwards onto other people. So it's kind of, like, I suppose, what Freud would call projection, right? A projection of my own to you. And this is the one that's been studied a lot in uh, relationships. And you see some, find some really interesting stuff around like a harmony in terms of relationships, interpersonal conflict, relational conflict, when I expect too much of you and I expect too much of myself. You also see lower sexual satisfaction, difficulties in other difficulties in the bedroom. Other difficulties. <laughs> oh. Tell me about those other difficulties. I see you flushing. <laughs> Too much pressure on ourselves to perform, but I'll leave it at that. But you see... <laughs> Do you mean erectile issues? We're adults here. We can talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. So this is stuff we see in the data. You see this come through. And it all comes back to this pressure and intense amount of expectation that we're placing on ourselves to perform all times and also our partner to perform a certain role all the times. And like, you know, of course, that we, I think we think that that's the right thing because we want to impress and please. But actually, the data is suggesting completely the opposite. That actually, it can create a lot more disharmony and tension and difficulty. So is the data suggesting we should be less perfect for our partners? Well, just more accepting of the reality that people are imperfect, that it's never going to be a perfect, there's there's no such thing as a perfect relationship. There's always going to be, (laughs) there's always going to be difficulties. There's always going to be challenges. There's always things that partners do that (laughs) annoy or piss you off. That's fine. Like the overriding emotion and the thing that carries relationships through is that love. You know, if you love somebody that you can tolerate those imperfections and you can recognize that they're just part and parcel of, of being a flawed human being, and that's okay. Everybody's flawed. So it's all, it's really, it goes back to that acceptance piece, right? We talked about it. It's about acceptance and accepting that nobody's perfect, can ever be made perfect, and that's okay. You know, the good outweighs the bad in relationships and the partners that we select, and that's always the most important thing to hold on to. I appreciate that so much. I think it's important if if you're listening and you're going, no, like something in me is pushing harder against that of like, no, I need them to be. I need them to be more of. And it's funny because I, I was doing a couples therapy session last night. I think part of the the challenge sometimes is we feel like there's, again, like there's this idea that's very popular now. You're like, accept, accept, accept. And what happens in that ideology is that we then suppress the impulses to want something different. And that creates its own complication too. And so to normalize both this, everyone is flawed. And as humans, we also might want something different from our partners. We might want more. We might want something better. And both are important to listen to. It may not be important to share both or okay to share both all the time, 
<laughs> but it is important. Like it, it was a relief for this couple to just be like, I wish you were better at doing the dishes, frankly. And they're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. I wish you were better at communicating your feelings. Yeah, I wish that too. Ha, huh, we're both in alignment. And it's not like, it's not an attack, but it's also like going, but it, in that too, there's like an acknowledgement that you're not perfect. And for them last night, it was really beautiful to be like, you're not perfect. And I still am holding your hand and I love you. Isn't that interesting? Because I'm not suppressing the impulse too. Yeah, but that also goes back. That's a beautiful thing because it's so true. Having open lines of communication about those things are important. What's what's important and, and the perfectionist thing to do would be to be punitive about it. So do you know what I mean? Like you aren't very good at this and therefore you are not a good person. Like it's, this is this is that kind of perfectionist. It, it makes everything very personal and that your flaws are part of your characteristic. Whereas accepting that nobody's perfect, the are all imperfect human beings and showing our vulnerability means that we can acknowledge our flaws mistakes and we can we can talk about those things in other people too, knowing that it comes from a very compassionate place. Actually, you know, <laughs> it's okay. I recognize it. I've seen it. I'm bringing it up because I know that we can move in a direction that remedies those things because, you know, this is part and parcel of what it means to be human, to, to make mistakes, but also be able to rectify them. So I think the perfectionistic mindset is very rigid, very punitive, and that was why it can come into conflict in relationships and create a lot of disharmony. The acceptance piece is more about not, not you know, accepting things when they're not good enough, but at the same time being able to accept that it's okay, we can we can talk about it and we can come to, you know, we can remedy the situation. And I think that's a very different mindset. Yeah, I really appreciate that unpacking. And like, there's just the way you describe that, it just offers so much more permission to like I, this is obvious but the permission to not be perfect because we're not permission to not be like every moment in the relationship is going to go great or i am going to mess up but again what you're saying is like that the underlying love is the anchor that goes oh i messed up there's some rupture but there's this underlying base that helps us accept some of those challenges some of those flaws some of those ruptures and even find our way back into relationship when we come out of it. Yeah, that's the foundation, isn't it? And if that's strong, you never feel like it's going to, how the house is going to tip over because even though it might teeter, it's always going to maintain its equilibrium because it's you know it's held in place by that foundation of love. And I think that, I mean, we're getting quite deep now, Scott. <laughs> but that's what it's all about, fundamentally in terms of relationship. And and you know, in the in, in the relationships that are close and that are strong, that there is that foundation because you slip up, you can have an open conversation about it, knowing that that's not going to in any way have an impact impact on the way that you feel about each other but it is going to have an impact on our behavior moving forward and that's the crucial distinction in my mind anyway having looked back on my own relationships between relationships that i know have built on a very strong foundation and ones that are not built on that foundation yeah i think i'm just pausing so that we can all take a moment to think about the relationships where that is there where there was that permission to actually be I don't like the word flawed personally, but we can use it. Like, I just want to say like the permission to be human <laughs> and embedded in that is like the absence of perfection. And when we think back to those relationships where there was that permission, that acceptance, the knowledge that you could not get the A on the test or not say the exact right thing at the exact right time, and they would still be there. Like, I think that's part of what fills that that underlying void or that sense of deficit that like, no one's going to catch me or I'm not going to be caught unless it's exact, unless it's perfect. Yeah, absolutely. It's so, it's so true. And, and I'm sure your listeners can also look back at their own history of relationships and you can identify those, the real strong ones are the ones that really give permission to be imperfect, as you say. And that's, that's what it's about in a relationship. Damn. I feel like buzzy right now. Like I'm excited to go like connect back with some of my relationships now and after this and just be like, I really appreciate you. Like I really appreciate you don't even know what you've done is but you've you've really allowed for some of that deficit in me to be released just by the fact that you are consistent and no matter how I show up or what I do. My friend Thomas, thank you so much for inspiring us 
for guiding us in the beginning or the middle or definitely not the end of the journey towards resolving our perfectionism. And where can people find you in the world? And where can people get your book? Oh, that's a very nice invitation. Thank you, Scott, for allowing me to just plug that very quickly. Yeah, so my book is called The Perfection Trap. It's available in all good bookstores and online. If you just Google The Perfection Trap, Thomas Curran, it will, it will come up as a, as a first hit. And I would encourage listeners, if you do go and read it, I, I just love to hear from readers, good, bad, or indifferent, or whatever, please do let me know. I'm, I'm always keen to to hear your viewpoints, and I will always reply. So please don't be shy. I'd love to hear what you think. Amazing. And are you on social media if people want to like connect with you there or anywhere else? I'm not on the main channel social media like Instagram or TikTok, but I do have a LinkedIn account if you'd like to connect there. So again, if you just type in Thomas Curran Infection Chap, you'll find the LinkedIn through my website. So yeah, do do connect. Let's connect. Absolutely. Yeah. And your WhatsApp number is again. <laughs> social security. <laughs> your social security. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Have it all. Have it all. Have it all. No <laughs> Thomas, thank you for this perfect podcast. I've enjoyed it. It's been great. <laughs> it's been great. And for all those who have listened, thank you so much for tuning. And we look forward and connect with Thomas. On LinkedIn, what's up? Through his social security number, or and especially his book. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Gently Used Human podcast with Dr. Scott Lyons and friends. Visit GentlyUse.com for fun extras, including submitting your questions for advice from a Midwestern mom. And don't forget to spill the tea and gossip about the show with all your friends and frenemies. And show some love by giving us five stars and leaving a review in your favorite apps. This helps us connect with all the other gently used humans out there. Oh, and by the way, you look fierce today.